What I'd like to do today is actually just start with a review and do a couple question and answers that have been coming in before we actually jump into the meat of today's traditional Latin Mass class number three. The first thing that I wanted to answer is there's a couple questions just on what I had taught about mental prayer. And the two questions I got was, one, are you really saying meditation's more important than the Mass? And two, what do you mean by mental prayer? So as for the first one, None of the doctors of the church that I know of say that daily mass is necessary for salvation, but several doctors of the church do say meditation is necessary. Daily meditation is necessary for salvation. So again, what I would say is mental prayer or meditation is subjectively more important than getting to daily mass, but objectively daily mass is obviously a higher prayer because it's literally the son offering himself to the father question uh, that followed that was what do you mean by meditation the very best book that I know on this is called Conversation with Christ by a Father Rohrbach R-O-H-R B-A-C-H and I'm going to link this on my blog and iTunes for this class traditional Latin mass number three Conversation Conversation with Christ is the name of it And it's by Rohrbach, R-O-H-R-B-A-C-H. And basically he gives you five steps, how Teresa of Avila taught her nuns and how Ignatius of Loyola taught his men and even the lay people who came into his, um, the, the retreats of the spiritual exercises. And the basics is that you place yourself, say, as walking Mary up the hill on the donkey to go visit her cousin Elizabeth at Ein Karim. You picture... You know, what is the roughness of the rope on your hands? What does it feel like to tie it? What does it look like outside Elizabeth's house? I always picture like a big yellow house with a fountain and the challah bread cooking. And it sounds very juvenile, maybe even 1970s-ish, but this is, again, how Teresa of Avila and Ignatius of Loyola taught their people how to meditate, where you really are very childlike, not childish, but very childlike in picturing the five senses. Um, And then Christ meets you in that, and you have a conversation with him. So the book explains that, but it's, it's really not that complex. It's really like the more childlike you can be, the better. And I have a friend who actually teaches his kids this, and they have literally mystical experiences because they're so good at imagination and their hearts are so pure. Um, I also want to do, before we jump into the meat of today, just a review of the quadrants of the 1962 missile, your little um, wonder. I guess since there's, I sort of brought it up into broke it up into seven parts, so what would that be? Heptocrants or something? Not quadrants, but heptocrants. And so I'm going to give you those seven. The first, heptocrant, the first of the seven, If you, this is just rough if you look in almost every 1962 missile going back probably a couple hundred years. The first section is devotionals. The second section is the Sundays in Advent and Lent. Those are also called movable feasts. And it doesn't mean they're movable between the Sundays that they're at, usually. It means more, well, actually, that is true. They are movable based on when the sun and the moon and everything affects Passover. But really, those are called movable feasts because they're not the same every year. Let's say the third heptocrant is the Sundays after Pentecost. That also includes the movable movable feasts that come after Pentecost. And I'm actually going to link, there's a really, really neat PDF calendar on my blog. I'm also going to link that um, 
on my blog and iTunes so that you can click on that PDF and it'll give you all the movable fees for the next 20 years and then you can just print it up and it's a real aid. You can fold it up into fours and put it into your missile or your breviary. It's really, really nice to have so that you'll know what I'm going to be doing in the future masses or even if it's not me. The fourth section would be the ordinary or the Roman canon and the prefaces. So it's right about in the middle. Anytime you grab a missile and you're going to Mass, even if it's not your missile, right around the middle you should be able to find the ordinary and the prefaces. Now, the Baronius Press actually has the prefaces before the ordinary, but the ones that Chris got you all, the Angelus Press, has the prefaces right after the ordinary. The next section, five of seven, I'm going to call those common masses. We'll get into those later, but it basically means the common mass of a priest-martyr confessor, the common mass of a virgin, the common mass of a woman who is neither virgin nor martyr, the common mass of a confessor, which means someone who suffered for the faith but didn't die for it, which is every saint who's not a martyr, actually. Number six of the seven is saints and immovable feasts. Can someone give me an example of an immovable feast? The Assumption. The Assumption, because it's always on August 15th. So this is number six of the seven. That's probably the first. If you ever start going to daily mass for the traditional Latin mass, that's actually the first place I would encourage you to start looking is towards the movable feast or the calendar. So like, let's say it's the middle of July and you go to a daily mass and, I don't know, we'll say it's July 15th. The first thing you're wanting to do is to come about three-fourths into any missile and start looking for that date in July and then you can start building on it. It's probably going to reference you to the common masses, maybe the mass of a confessor or the mass of a papal martyr. It might sort of like Lego blocks where you borrow from these other Lego sets. But the very first thing to look at on a daily mass is going to be the actual date, about you know five-eighths or three-fourths through your missile. So the sixth section is saints and immovable feasts. And then the seventh, heptocrant, is... Votive Masses and Devotionals. So on any third or fourth class votive, sorry, on any third or fourth class feast or a feral day, meaning a day without a feast, we can pick certain masses to fit in there, like Monday, Mass of the Angels, uh, Tuesday I think is Apostles, Wednesday I could do a votive Mass of St. Joseph, Thursday a votive Mass of the Holy Eucharist, Friday a Mass of the Passion of Christ, and then every Saturday, obviously, the votive Mass is for the Blessed Virgin Mary. So a votive Mass um, is also based on which day it is, but it has to be a day without a first or second class feast. also want to give you a really quick review of the different types of Mass. Uh, misa Privata means a private Mass, and it's the exact same thing as a Misa Lecta, which means Red Mass. And that's actually not the ideal through history, but it's become the standard mass for every priest who does the old mass. Because if he doesn't have a server, or if he only has a server but no choir, that's what he does. So like what I just did upstairs, even though we did have some singing, that was actually the Misa Privata or the Misa Lecta. Now the term high mass, well let me rewind. So that's called a low mass, what I just described, the Misa Privata or the Misa Lecta. Under this umbrella term of high mass, there's three types. There's Misa Cantata, Misa Solemnis, and Pontifical High Mass. 
Misa Cantata, our first one here at the Immaculate Conception, will be this, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception at 7 p.m. That's going to have all the singing, all the incense, full choir, but only one priest. The next step up, which is really the, quote, standard, even though it's the most rare, is called a Misa Solemnis, which thankfully in English sounds the same. It's the solemn mass, or since it's a high mass, a solemn high mass that takes three priests. One priest plays the part of priest, one priest plays the part of deacon, and one priest plays the part of subdeacon. Or, maybe more accurately, priest plays the part of priest, a deacon plays the part of deacon, and subdeacon or a straw subdeacon can play the part of subdeacon, and they all have singing parts. And this is also the gold standard that goes back probably 1,500 years, if not more. In any low mass or high mass, there's 52 crosses. And in any high mass, there's 67 specific incensations. That's what the incense, 67 specific moves I've had to memorize for the Misa Cantata. So it's very, very specific. My goal today is from the opening sign of the cross to the gospel and the Misa Cantata that we're going to do here, Immaculate Conception. So we're going to go through that today. If you want to grab your missiles here, there's really only two ribbons that you need. One is going to be the ordinary, and the other is going to be the propers. Remember, propers mean that which is specific to the Mass, not the skeleton that never changes, which is the Roman canon, but the actual propers of that which changes every Mass. And because this is a movable feast... Again, I'll have a link on the blog to that. You're, the first thing you're going to look at is about five-eighths into your missile. Look for December 8th. And that's on 1059 in the Angelus Press. And then in other books, it's obviously going to be a different page. But that's the first thing you want to find is Immaculate Conception, page 1059 in the Angelus Press. And the only other ribbon you really need as we walk through this is the Roman Canon, the Ordinary. There's going to be no asperges in this because it doesn't fall on a Sunday. We only have the asperges where I walk around with a cope in the water. Or in Easter season, it's called the vidiaquam. I saw water from Ezekiel. And if you watch the Fulton Sheen video that I told you about on YouTube, if you put, in, if you put into YouTube Fulton Sheen, Chicago, Easter Mass, some combination of those words... There's a video with a couple hundred thousand views that was massed in about 1940, and he does a really amazing walkthrough. And I'm going to link that on my blog in case you didn't find it. But he talks about the Vidiaquam because that's the first day of the year that there's actually, since Easter falls on a Sunday, either the asparagus or the Vidiaquam, but since Easter is actually Easter, it's going to be the Vidiaquam. So I'll link that one on my blog. And finally, if you have an iPhone... I found a really great app called the iMass app. It's $2 on iTunes, and it'll show you the all of the readings of the day. So if you're not really sure how to use your missile, that will actually line up all of the ordinary and the propers immediately for you as you go through it. So it's a really neat app I just found. I'll link that on my blog. And then because today we're going to really line up the ordinary and the propers with the meditation of St. Francis de Sales... Finally, I'm going to link that on my blog, too, for you to go through the meditations of those parts of the Mass. So the six things I'm going to link on the blog today is Conversation with Christ, a PDF of the Movable Feasts, Fulton Sheen describing the Easter Mass in Chicago around 1940 on YouTube, the iMass app, the St. Francis de Sales Meditations, 
Oh, and the sixth is the, the book by Father Jackson. It's sort of the much more advanced form of this class. I'll include that as the sixth link there. But again, today the goal is just to look at how to use your missile and your brain from the sign of the cross and the Immaculate Conception Mass to the Gospel. But we're specifically going to look at the Misa Cantata. So we start with the sign of the cross. Well, no, actually... They're going to start singing a Marian hymn, and then we're going to all go in with incense, cross, all the servers, and then me with the bread. And we actually enter from the back at this point. They'll be singing the music. I will uh, we'll all genuflect, all the servers. We always genuflect before the Son of God. Then I go up, and you'll notice always, whether it's a low mass or a high mass, I always set up the chalice by taking out the corporal, putting the burst to the left, and then the chalice always sits in the old mass, not the new mass, but it will always sit on the corporal. Then I move over to the right, make sure my ribbons are in the right spot, go to the epistle side, that is, open it, and get everything ready, and what I'm going to be looking for is the introit and the collect, the first two propers, because those are the first two parts I haven't memorized of the mass, and that's probably about where you want your book open at this point, too. Then I come back to the center, I bow to Jesus in the Eucharist, and you'll notice when I actually descend, whether it's a sun mass or a... Um, a high mass, I never fully turn my back to Christ the King in the Eucharist. I'll always come down at like, what would that be, like a 220 degree angle or something? I'll always keep my shoulders sort of towards him because we don't turn our back on Jesus. So you'll notice it's not me um, having trouble coming down directly. It's that I always try to keep part of my chest, my heart facing Jesus as I come down. Then I genuflect and I say, Nomine Patris, Affiliate Spiritu Santi, Intro Ebel Adatari Dei. And then that begins the prayers with the um, with the acolyte. But the choir's still singing. And so you can either join in singing or you can join your prayers to what St. Francis de Sales says is to be prayer to, prayed at this point. And he says, quote, O Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, who was to please voluntarily to endure mortal terror and anguish at the view of thine approaching passion, give me grace henceforth to consecrate all my sorrows to thee, O God of my heart. Assist me to support my trials in union with thine agony, that through the merits of thy passion they may be profitable to my gain. So that's for the prayers at the foot of the altar that we picture Jesus in the garden. And so it might be worth reading this. You don't have to maybe bring all these papers to Mass of St. Francis de Sales, but if you read it a few times through, it'll give you a good idea of what you should be meditating on at this part of the Mass. <coughs> then as you see me lean over and I'm confessing my sins, St. Francis de Sales said you should think of Jesus prostrated in the garden. Isn't that a beautiful connection? I'm, I'm bending over to confess my sins. And this is where we picture Jesus prostrated in the garden. Even though he's not a sinner and I am. But my sins have weighed on him. Then you'll see me go up to the altar. you see me kiss the altar. And even though I'm kissing the relics, Francis de Sales asks us to meditate on also something besides the saints, and it's Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss. St. Francis de Sales says, Lord Jesus Christ, who did submit to the embrace of Judas, preserve me by thy grace from misfortune of ever betraying thee, and assist me to repay calumny and injustice with cordial charity and active kindness. Then you'll notice that I take the incense... And I load it three times, and I say, which means, may you be blessed, in whose name you will be burnt. And then I genuflect before the cross, incense the cross, genuflect. Anytime I cross, almost picture like a laser beam down the middle, anytime I cross that laser beam, I have to genuflect. 
like an exact plane. I'll, I'll then incense the relics to the left, come back, swing to the right, obviously genuflex since I'm crossing the middle, incense the relics to the right, and then I start incensing the top of the epistle side, then the far right of the epistle side, and then I can show you a diagram. I'll show you a diagram next week, but the point is there is, what did I say, 67 specific incensings um, in this Mass. Question for you all. So incense, is it pleasing to God because it's figuratively pleasing to God because of our prayers, or is the incense itself pleasing to God? I'd say both are important, that not only is incense representative of our prayers going up to heaven, as it says in the Psalms, but also the actual incense, if we take the Bible literally, as most of the popes of the past couple hundred years um, have told us to do, the actual incense is pleasing to God too. It also represents a veil between us and God, the holiness that He is. As you see all that smoke up in the Old and the New Testament, that smoke, that veil is a sign of um, the separation between us and God. And even though, if you say that to Protestants, they'll say, but wasn't the veil ripped when Jesus' heart was opened up? Wasn't the veil of the Jews um, ripped so that we have access to the Trinity? And the answer is yes. But you can use a good Protestant line back in, at them and say, grace is free, but it's not cheap. That's what I would say. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. And they'll get that because it's Protestant line. But that's the, and, and that's where you can also remind them what it says in the Apocalypse, that nothing unclean will enter heaven. So, I mean, to enter in the presence of God is a terrifying thing. And the priest should be afraid of this um, in the good sense, that he's entering into heaven at the foot of Calvary, and that smoke is a sign of everything that you read in the Apocalypse, everything that you read in the book of Exodus when, when sacrifices are going up. So this tells us we're no longer at a normal spot on earth. Incense is very important. So again, it has to be both. The incense is pleasing to God because it's figuratively pleasing, since it represents our prayers going up, but also I would say it's literally pleasing to God. By the way, if you ever walk the Camino of Santiago, I've done that twice, you actually end up in um, where the bones of St. James are, and they have an incenser that's about six feet tall, and they swing it across the church. It takes six people to swing it, and it goes about between 44 and 50 miles an hour as it swings from one side of this transept of the cathedral to the other. And so you... Yeah, Chris? I'm sorry. Finish your thought. I'm sorry. Okay. So this Botafogo, as it's called, is swung... Even today, every single day, with enormous amounts of incense coming up as it flies at 44 to 50 miles an hour as it comes down. And people say, oh, that's just because everybody stunk after they walked the Camino. And, you know, and that's part of it. I mean, if you do think about how people smelled for all of history before the invention of modern showers, which is only like December 31st if you were to expand all 6,000 years of humanity to now. I mean, everyone stunk constantly up until 50 years ago. So it would make sense when you're all packed into a church. It, incense does have that additional point that it kind of relieves the smell. I mean, imagine if you were in a homeless shelter. Even kings would have smelled like homeless men 100 years ago. You know, So after walking the whole Camino, obviously the place is going to stink, but it also still is incense going up to God. At that, and the movie "The Way" with Emilio Estevez has that. It's very accurate. Chris, Saint James, as in Christ's brother. Well, Jesus didn't have brothers. It's oh. it's his cousin, right? Okay. So, Jesus, his three closest apostles 
were Peter, James, and John. The word relative is the closest to Greek. Yeah, Protestant translations. I think I read yeah. where Jesus had brothers. Mm-hmm. And was it James who had more of a uh, Jewish that was common back post, brothers. post yeah uh, post uh, death of Christ Christianity? So Christian yeah. Paul, which who ultimately won, but I was under the impression was James. Mm-hmm figure was Christ's brother. Yeah. So that's a Protestant translation. If you look at the original Hebrew and the Greek, the word cousin slash relative can also be translated brother. It's it's all the same. And that's actually the case in other languages. I remember I was helping a, a kid from Nepal in a hospital once, and he kept calling um, someone his brother, but it was his cousin, and there was so much loss in translation. And then all of a sudden I realized that he wasn't asking me to call his brother, but asking me to call his cousin. So I realized at that moment, wow, there's actually a lot of even modern languages that have this conflation of terms like cousin and, um, and brother and relative. So Protestant <coughs> translations use brother because they're unwilling to recognize the perpetual virginity of Mary. They recognize that, Jesus was, uh, that Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born. But they don't, much to their blasphemy and possibly loss of their salvation, because it's so blasphemous against Our Lady, don't recognize the perpetual virginity of Mary. So Mary was a virgin before Christ's birth, during his birth, and after his birth. So she's perpetually virgin. So Jesus is, there's, so James was, no siblings, but he was probably, James may have been a cousin of Jesus. So Jesus had the, I mean, these concentric circles. The crowds who follow Jesus go one concentric circle in. Then you have the 72 disciples who follow Jesus. Then go one concentric circle in. You've got the 12 apostles. And then you go one concentric circle in. The closest three apostles that he brought only or exclusively to certain events like the raising of the dead girl, the transfiguration, is Peter, James, and John. That James went and evangelized Spain, came back to Israel, was martyred, and you can read this in Acts of the and Apostles Paul by here. Not hit it off, right? Um, I know Paul says that he took his hand right at Paul's conversion. Um, Paul said he took his hand in friendship in Acts. So I don't know about that. And then James was killed in Acts of the Apostles, and then angels and his disciples brought his body back to Spain, buried it in northwest Spain. But it wasn't for a thousand years later that this pilgrimage started. And that is what people have been walking for a thousand years now. In fact, nowadays, it's 200,000 people walk that Camino de Santiago. And most of them are secular Europeans. I've walked it twice. I would say 90 to 95% of the people I've met are secular Europeans on it. But we believe even those not in sanctifying grace can receive what the church calls actual graces. So they're still receiving actual graces as they walk. And there's there's many beautiful stories. In fact, I couldn't believe that a modern Hollywood movie with Emilio Estevez actually has one of the main characters in this movie, The Way, walk it in reparation for her abortion. Isn't that amazing? One of the major Hollywood uh, productions has her walk this in reparation for an abortion. And she's not even Catholic. And it's, it's a very, very beautiful movie if you uh, have a chance to see it. Does that answer your question? So, so James was a cousin and one of the closest three apostles and a martyr in Israel, and he's known as the father of the faith in Spain, which is pretty amazing since 1,500 years after he died... Spain brought the faith as far as Brazil all the way to the Philippines, so which is actually the whole globe. And James felt like a total loser. No one was converted. He only had eight disciples, where these other apostles had all these, 
all these many conversions. He only had eight. And the very first Marian apparition, Mary appeared to him in, as they say in Spain, Zaragoza, and said, don't give up. The people of this country will be as faithful as the pillar that I'm standing on. And that's called Nuestro Señor del Pilar, which is why many Hispanics take the name Pilar. Many, many Hispanic women and Spanish women have the name Pilar. Because Mary appeared to him. And here's what's amazing. Mary was actually still alive, living in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, with John, who I think was James's brother, living in Turkey, so she bilocated. You know how we talk about Padre Pio bilocating? Mm-hmm. Mary was actually the first in the New Testament to bilocate. <clears throat> so she appeared to James in Spain, said, don't give up, because he was so sad, he only had eight, eight disciples. Don't give up, the people of this land will be as strong as the pillar of mine. And because of him not giving up with only eight disciples... Francis Xavier baptized 500,000 people. Another Spaniard, Peter Claver, baptized the same amount, about 500,000, in Colombia. Shows you not to give up if there's only a couple people under your tutelage, doesn't it? Okay, should I keep going? Okay, great. So now the priest goes to the epistle side. That's to the right side. Francis de Sales says we should think of Jesus being dragged to prison. The prayer he proposes for us is, Lord Jesus Christ, who did submit to be bound with ropes by the hands of wicked men, break, I beseech thee, the chains of my sins and attach the powers of my soul and body closely to thee by bonds of charity that they may never escape from the salutary restraint of perfect submission to thy divine will. I mean, think about that. What if you actually prayed that when you just see me walk to the right? We just say, okay, he's going to the right now. What if you saw it as a saint saws it, saws it, sees it? You'd want to be a saint like him. At this point, the choir is still singing the intro in the curia, but one of the rules of the old mass is every prayer that is prayed, the priest at least has to whisper, even if other people are singing it. So the church allows other people to sing it louder for the people, like parts like the Gloria and stuff, but there's no part of the mass the priest can just sit down and say, well, the people are handling it. So I'm whispering it as people are singing the introit and the curie. So the introit's whispered, I cross myself. <laughs> and in the Immaculate Conception, the introit is, I will heartily rejoice in the Lord. In my God is the joy of my soul, for he has clothed me with a robe of salvation and wrapped me in a mantle of justice like a bride bedecked with her jewels. Obviously that's referring to Mary as also bride of the Holy Ghost. Then on the right, this is what's different from the sung mass or a high mass versus a low mass. Normally at the low mass, I say the curia in the middle right before the Blessed Sacrament. But in the sung mass, I say it back and forth, whispering with my MC. Curia lays on, curia lays on, curia lays on, Christia lays on, Christia lays on, Christia lays on, curia lays on, curia lays on, curia lays on. Because there's three threes, St. Francis of Sales asks us to meditate on Jesus being three times denied by Peter. See, three threes, and then Peter denying three times. So St. Francis of Sales says... And this is as you're hearing them sing the Kyrie. You won't hear me say the Kyrie, but as you hear the Kyrie and see me to the right, you could pray this prayer of St. Francis de Sales. Lord Jesus Christ, who did submit to be thrice denied in the house of Caiaphas by the head and prince of the apostles, preserve me from the danger of evil company that I may not be exposed to the misfortune of separation from thee. See how all this applies to your life. You're praying that you don't end up in bad company like Peter did and that He's reminding us, even the Prince of the Apostles denied Jesus at this point. So please preserve me from the danger of evil company. 
Okay, then I go to the middle and I sing the Gloria. You'll notice I put my head down. And because this is so long, I actually sit down as the choir sings. But I'll whisper the whole Gloria at the middle. So I'll say, Gloria in excelsis Deo. And then I'll whisper the whole thing as the choir goes. And because of the Middle Ages, maybe before that, but probably in the Middle Ages, these got so long, the priest sits down. You'll always notice that I take my hat off for important parts like, we adore you for the name of Jesus. And then I come back up and I say, Dominus Vobiscum, or the tune that you'll always hear me say is, Dominus Vobiscum. And then, what's the response? Can anyone sing it? It's more like, Dominus Vobiscum, Ecum Spiritu Tuo. But your choir will lead you in that. And what did I say last week was to meditate on, remember Dr. Ted Sree had some thoughts on Dominus Vobiscum, the Lord be with you. Anyone remember that? Did I talk about that last week? Oh, okay. Dr. Ted Sree talks about when any time in the Bible, oh, that was maybe three weeks ago, when an angel in the Old Testament says, the Lord be with you, it's always an encouragement for a large task ahead of you. And this is why it's worth taking this class, because not that it's all an intellectual exercise to worship God, but it's kind of good to know what's going on. So there's a big task, and that's what you're studying here. So... St. Francis de Sales asks that at that moment we be meditating on, quote, Jesus looking at Peter and touching his heart. Lord Jesus Christ, who by one glance of love didst melt the heart of St. Peter into a fountain of penitential tears, grant by thy mercy that I may weep for my sins and never by word or deed deny thee who art my Lord and my God, close quote. So do you notice that St. Francis de Sales is like Padre Pio? He sees the whole Mass as the Passion of Christ. Then I go to the right and I'll sing the Collect. And one reason we call it the Collect is because I'm collecting the prayers of everybody who's there. It's going to sound like this for the Immaculate Conception. Dominus vobiscum et cum spiritu tuo oremus Deus qui per immaculatum virginis conceptionem dignum filio tuo habitaculum peparasti Que sumusut, qui ex morte ustim filie tui previsa, eam ab omne labi perservasti, nos quoque mundus eius intercessione te pervenere concedas, per eundum dominum nostrum Jesum Christum filium tuum, qui tecum bibitrinat in unitati spiritus sancti Deus, per omnia secula seculorum. And the response is, Amen. Here's the translation for that. O God, who by the immaculate conception of the Virgin prepared a worthy dwelling for your Son, and who by your Son's death, foreseen by you, preserved her from all taint, grant we beseech you through her intercession that we too may come to you unstained by sin. So it was the previsa in Latin means foreseen. The foreseen merits of Jesus dying on the cross kept Mary from ever falling into sin. Right? So that's why Mary in the Magnificat calls Jesus, her Savior, he saved her from ever having sinned or in the future ever sinning, where you and I are saved from our actual sins and original sin. Then uh, you'll hear me sing the epistle on the epistle side. Again, that's the right side. St. Francis de Sales asks us to meditate on Jesus being conducted to the house of Pilate. Lord Jesus Christ, who is pleased to be led before Pilate and there falsely accused, teach me to avoid the deceits of the wicked and to profess my faith by the constant practice of good works. Okay, then I'm done. And does everybody see in your uh, missal where the epistle is? So you'll hear me sing that on December 8th at about 7.15 p.m. You'll hear me sing that in Latin. 
But it's probably good to sort of follow along. And that's just on that ribbon. It's one of the first propers. Then as the choir sings the gradual and the alleluia, and those are also propers you want to look at, I'll actually be whispering them. Then I'll go to the middle, load the incense, fill that up. Then I go over to the gospel side, which is your left and my left, but as you mentioned last week, last week God's right, but our left. So I move to the gospel side, and you know, have you guys ever heard like comedians make fun of all the movements in a Catholic mass? You know, it's even more in the traditional Latin mass how the movements of the priests. And I was thinking of this this morning when I was sort of writing my notes for this, and I realized in a certain sense St. Francis de Sales also reminds us how ridiculous it is how many times Jesus was bounced between the homes of Pilate and Caiaphas and Herod. Because he says that the epistle that Jesus is conducted to the house of Pilate, but he says that the Munda Cormeum, Jesus is led to Herod. And he says, Lord Jesus Christ, who did silently endure to be again falsely accused before Herod, grant me patiently, grant me patience under calumny and silence under outrages. And then as I move to the left, Francis de Sales says we should think of Jesus being mocked as a fool and sent back to Pilate. Lord Jesus Christ, who did submit to be sent as a fool by Herod to Pilate, though enemies before, then became friends. Strengthen me so powerfully by thy grace, that instead of apprehending the machinations of the wicked, I may learn to bear their malice as thou didst, and thus render their injustice profitable to my soul. So all those movements that you see me do, instead of thinking they're silly, you could also see them as Jesus being led by these fools all around the homes of Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate, and how he submitted to that. And that's what it takes to be Catholic, to submit to that, as Jesus did in his death. So then, after I sing the gospel, and notice that I incense the gospel, more proof. So funny, as I, got, as I said a couple weeks ago, it's funny that people say Catholics didn't respect the gospel before Vatican II, and here the gospel gets incensed preferably every Sunday. Then I go back to the middle, take my maniple off, put that on the missile, bow to the Son of God, descend, always keeping part of my chest towards him, genuflect. And then, because my maniple's off, this is a sign it's actually a pause in the Mass, and that's why the sermon's not part of the Mass. Then I give the announcements, then I give the readings in English, or the vernacular, which vernacular just means the language of the people. And I say in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, then I give a sermon, and then I say in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and then, always after the sermon... If it's a first or second class feast, we say the creed. Whether it's a low mass, or I should say in a low mass, I will whisper the creed. And in a sung mass, I'll say, Credo in unum deum. And then I'll whisper it up there. You'll see me genuflect, even for my whispered part of when Christ became man, incarnatus est. And it's perfectly timed, because right as I finish whispering it, I'll come down, and that's right when the choir, at least in the Misa de Angelis, is singing the words at incarnatus est, and then you will see me kneeling with you all, because you'll be genuflecting or kneeling at that same time too. So we'll all be on our, both of our knees for singing of the incarnation of Christ. So it's all very, very physical and incarnational. Then I'll get up, go sit down, as they say, crucifixus, it sings about Jesus being crucified. I'll still take my hat off, my beretta off for the parts that we especially <laughs> honor God. Then I'll time it so that right when the sung credo of the Misa de Angelis or whatever Mass we do is finishing up, 
I'll come and I'll kiss the altar and I'll spin around and say, Dominus Vohobihiscum. And you say, Et cum spiritu tuo. And then I say, Oremus. And then I, with my hands together, whisper the offertory. But at this point, the choir will be singing the offertory. In the low mass, you'll hear me say it. In the sung mass, you will not. You'll actually hear the choir say it. And this is most of the mass of the catechumens. This is in the early church when those who were coming into the church were allowed to stay up to this point. So they got the word of God, they got the education, they got to see the basics, but pretty soon they're going to be dismissed because we'll be approaching the mass of the faithful, which is the Roman canon and the actual sacrificial part of the mass. It's all a sacrifice, but especially the separation of the blood and the body, I should say. So her question is, on December 8th, why would there actually be an option for Lenten time and Easter time Immaculate Conception Masses. The answer to that is because sometimes you can have a votive mass of one of those different things sometimes during the year. So let's say during Easter season, let's say you built a church in Italy in the 16th century called Immaculate Conception, but the bishop had the feast day of that dedicated on, say, May 4th or something like that. They would be allowed to do the mass of the Immaculate Conception, but May 4th, oh, that could be right in the middle of Easter season. So we would use the gradual and the Alleluia that actually happened there. But usually it's going to be a regional difference on something like that. Does that make sense? So it's a good question. But well, how about our parish? We, well, it's going to be on December 8th, so we're not going to, you can skip over those um, Easter-based. <laughs> yeah, you won't need the Easter-based gradual or Alleluia because it will only be in Advent. So the voted Mass is Monday. I'm going to be looking in pages 1544 in the Angelus Press. I want to tell you a few about. Uh, I want to tell you about a few of these voted Masses. Monday we can do the Mass of the Most Holy Trinity. Anytime there's not a first or second class feast, and I can't remember the rules on a third class feast. Tuesday Mass of the Angels. Wednesday if there's nobody there, Mass of Saint Joseph. Can't do this in Advent or Lent, obviously. I just mean a ferial season. Thursday, we can do the Mass of the Holy Ghost, or the Mass of the Most Holy Sacrament, or the Mass of our Lord Jesus Christ, Supreme and Eternal Priest. And all this makes total sense. Any idea why we might do a votive Mass of Jesus Christ, High Priesthood, on a Thursday? Any guesses? Yeah, Jesus established the priesthood on a Thursday. See how everything's in a cycle in this Mass? It's really, really neat. Friday, if we have an opening... No first or second or maybe third class feast. We can do the Mass of the Holy Cross. That'll be red. Or the Mass of the Passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you about a few votive Masses. And these are really, really neat. Oh, and Saturday's obviously Our Lady. Here's some of the various votive Masses based on things happening in the world. So this is page 1562 forwards. Here's the different ones we can do. And again, this is based on... Uh, things happening in the world. I think you used to have to get permission from the bishop at a parish to do this, but if there's no first or class feasts, I think I'm allowed to choose these. First is Mass for the election of a Pope. Two, Mass for the anniversary of the election or coronation of a Pope. Three, Mass on the anniversary of the election or consecration of a bishop. Four, Mass for the conferring of holy orders. So see, some of these only the bishop can choose. Uh, but some others, like starting with number 5 on page 1563, Mass for the Propagation of the Faith. So you're asking the faith to be spread. Number 6 on page 1567, Mass for the Defense of the Church. And those are really cool prayers. Number 7, notice it's in violet on, on page 50, 1569, it's in violet. Mass for the Unity of the Church. 
Good thing we don't need that mass anymore. <laughs> Number of 1573, mass in time of war. That's also inviolate because it's penitential. We're returning to God in tears. Number nine, mass for peace. That's on page 1576, also inviolate. These are some really interesting masses. Page 1578, also inviolate. Mass for the deliverance from death in time of pestilence. Number 11, Mass for obtaining the grace of the Holy Ghost. Number 12, Mass for the forgiveness of sins. 13, go ahead. We can use these, yes. Mass for the sick is 13. Mass for the grace of a good death. Wouldn't that be neat to have a priest in your room while you're dying? Have him do a Mass for the grace of a good death? All these prayers are just astronomically beautiful. 15, Mass for pilgrims and travelers. 16, Mass for any necessity. And 17, Mass of Thanksgiving. Somewhere in an older missal, I have a friend who's raising his family Byzantine, not my sister's family, a different friend. Apparently in an older missal, both east and west, there's actually one for the gift of tears. Pray for the gift of tears. Isn't that neat? It's not in here. I'll have to ask him where that actually is because tears for the church fathers is seen as a distant second to the Mass for how powerful it is. That Many of the saints say God really can't say no to um, prayers that are made with tears. And so the early church fathers often saw the gift of tears as almost an eighth sacrament. Um, they just pierce the heavens when you can pray with tears. So it's a great, great, great gift to pray for. Many saints like Ignatius of Loyola, he had cataracts. He, he he wept so much. It wasn't a kind of an effeminate, wimpy crying. He was just shocked at how many sins God had forgiven him when he offered Mass. In fact, it, the, uh, the devil's advocate for his canonization was dismissed because he had so grievously broken all Ten Commandments his whole life before his conversion. Doesn't that give you some encouragement for all of us becoming saints? That they, he had seriously broken all Ten Commandments and became one of the greatest saints in the history of the Church. So it gives us all hope and courage, right? But he wept every Mass, just tears rolling down his cheeks every Mass. So it's a great prayer to pray. Um, God answers the prayers that we pray with tears.